Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. All right, we'll pick back up in Acts chapter 10, verse 44 this morning as we close out that chapter one more time by way of review. And really what we identified last week in Acts chapter 10 were these three things, the first of which that Peter, with the keys to heaven, remember Peter had been given the keys to heaven, and God has used Peter in very specific ways, stating early on that on that rock, on Peter, on the foundation of the work that God would do in Peter would be built the church. And so uh, God had given to Peter the keys to heaven to unlock the doors for the gospel to go forth. And so he used Peter first to bring the gospel to the Jews, secondly to Samaria, and then third, as we saw last week, to the Gentiles. And so the important thing there to recognize is that the door is still open for us today to reach anyone with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is still the commandment to go forth into all the nations and preach the gospel. And so that door is still open here today. Secondly, Peter recognized that relationship is greater than religion. That what God purchased through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, was greater than our own personal feelings, our own biases. And we'll see a recap of that, truly a whole recap of that today in Acts chapter 11, as the Holy Spirit gives us really that same passage again, as Peter tells once again of what happened to cause him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And thirdly, we can still see God move in mighty ways today. If we allow the Lord to bend our hearts to those that perhaps we normally wouldn't, to allow the Lord to use us to reach individuals that we may perhaps never have reached out to before, that He would break our hearts for the things that break His. As we continue, again then in Acts chapter 10, verse 44, I'd ask that you'd agree with me in prayer as we open His Word. Father, we, we hold here this morning the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, divinely inspired, infallible, Lord, without error, the living Word of God, which has the power, Lord, to change hearts and minds, to speak to us, Lord. A book that no matter how many times we read it, Lord, can show us new things each and every time. And Lord, I pray that we'd treasure it this morning. I pray that we would be a body of believers, a fellowship of believers that so treasures the Word of God. You exalt it above your own name. Lord, may we treat it with the respect that it's due. Help us, Lord, to receive your word here this morning. Speak to us, Lord, and teach us that we'd leave here today different, challenged, Lord, encouraged, having a greater passion to pursue after you. So, Father, teach us here this morning. And as we continue to learn of the way in which the gospel began to go forth into all the world, Lord, Lord, convict us of the ways in which we may have some of the same biases that we see here amongst the people as they wrestled with where the gospel was going and what lives were being changed and how they were being changed and how it challenged their own traditions and their own beliefs. Lord, continue to challenge us today in that same way. Lord, may we never miss what it is that you're doing because of our own beliefs, our own perceptions, our own traditions, Lord. Lord, keep us sensitive always to the leading of your Spirit and help us to see all that you're doing in this body of believers, in this community, Lord. Help us to be in tune with the leading of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished 
as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water, that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and then they asked him to stay a few days. You see, Peter had been called somewhat miraculously. Cornelius, if you recall, had seen a vision of an angel. The Lord had spoken to Cornelius, had given him specific instruction to send men to find Peter. Peter, who was staying in the house of the tanner named Simon, was there praying and he saw a vision. And we'll see more and we'll get a recap of what that vision was. And it was, again, in a very divinely inspired, supernatural way that Peter has been called to go. And here men showed up at the house that he was staying in and they sought him to come with them and to go to this home of Cornelius. And when he went, he had a captive audience. They were there ready to hear from him. They were so looking forward to his arrival, they wanted to know what it was that he had for them to hear, what word of God that he would share with them. And Peter, in that situation, he wasn't even able to share all of what he had desired to share with them. It was in the middle of speaking that the Holy Spirit fell upon the Gentiles. And we'd seen the Holy Spirit arrive in different ways throughout the book of Acts. But what we see here is that the Holy Spirit can now empower the believer simultaneously with them accepting Jesus Christ. What we've seen throughout the book of Acts thus far is God continually challenging tradition, challenging religion, challenging legalism, challenging them to understand that God can work in a multitude of different ways. And here now the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentile believers. The simple fact that Peter was going to these Gentiles was radical in and of itself. But that he would see the Holy Spirit move and empower them in his visit to them was something that, as it says here, astonished them all. Peter was here with six other individuals. He brought many witnesses with him. And this would prove to be beneficial as he goes back to Judea and communicates and shares what had happened with the Gentiles because he'll meet some opposition. It was good that he had witnesses there that would be able to share, yes, this actually happened. And as the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, they began to magnify God. It was a mighty move of the Spirit. And what was beginning to happen was the realization, the fulfillment of what Jesus had said in John 10, 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And that's one of the most important things that we need to understand this morning as a professing body of believers is that we have one flock and one shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. That we are united through the blood of Jesus Christ. There should be no division amongst us. Christianity, faith in Jesus Christ, is the greatest unifying power the world has ever seen. And they're beginning to see this unfold. It was God's plan that was being carried out. And we are the beneficiaries of this still today. It was a great and radical work that was being done, and God was doing something new, or at least the continuation of something that was new. But with it came its challenges and the need for growth on the part of the, the individual believer to understand and to wrestle with and to grasp what God was doing. And so as we transition into chapter 11, we see several different things. One, the Holy Spirit wants to remind us again of the situation of events 
that turned Peter to the Gentiles. We must remember that that for the gospel to go to the Gentiles was no small event. This was turning tradition, culture, social norms upside down. But such was the work of a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be a world changer. Two, we see that because of the testimony of Peter and others, that the Jewish believers began to receive and to accept the Gentiles. Once again, reinforcing the importance of each and every one of us in the story that we have to tell, of what God has done in our lives and how it can have an impact on people who we may never even have anticipated. And so here they begin to receive and accept the Gentiles, and it proved that the Holy Spirit was at work. Thirdly, not only did they accept the Gentiles, but they began to minister to them and encourage them. And in the end, and the fourth thing that we'll see today, they benefited from the Gentiles' ministry. Isn't that a turn of events? That the church, the Jewish believers in Judea, they had spent this time going out and ministering. For all intents and purposes, they could have had the feeling, even the pride of We are the church, and we are going out and taking the message of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And while they did that, what they would find here at the end of this chapter is that it was the Gentile church that in many ways would begin to minister to them and support them, especially as they went into a time of famine, as the Gentile church gave of their resources to help their brothers and sisters. Amazing things were happening. And it's often the case that, as we'll see here, that the giver becomes the receiver. And this is necessary for all of us to receive, and it shows health in the church. That when God raises up new leaders for a time and a season that begin to pour into individuals, into individuals who at one point perhaps they were doing the ministering, or maybe new individuals taking on the lead and reaching out in new areas of ministry. We see this here within this account of how the church was growing and how it was functioning together. It's a lesson to us still today of how we're to grow and to work together as a body of believers. And so in Acts chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? You see, they were appalled by this. They couldn't believe that Peter would, do- would have done such a thing. He's made himself unclean. He's done something that's unacceptable. And these were Jewish believers. You see, as anticipated, there were those who were skeptical, concerned, and downright opposed to what they had heard. The word says it was those of the circumcision who contended with Peter. These individuals were legalistic Jewish believers who were still tied to the law and were steeped in tradition. They believed that to come to Christ still required that they come through the Jewish faith first. Naturally, if Christ is the Messiah and the fulfillment of the law, then wouldn't the law still be required? They contended with Peter, which effectively means, based on the interpretation, that they were trying to prove that there was a difference between them and the Gentiles. That we are different. Undoubtedly, better. God was dealing with their hearts. These believers allowed tradition, the way they had always done things, the way they preferred things to be done, to prevent them from seeing what God was doing. And so Peter is going to explain it to them again, recognizing that they needed to fully grasp what was happening so that they could appreciate the work and receive the Gentiles. 
In the same way, the Holy Spirit wants for us to hear it again. It's in the Word. We have that every now and then in the Word where we read something and then there it is again. It's the Holy Spirit's way of emphasizing the importance of certain things to us. And this is, in fact, a very important thing in the history of our faith. And so in verse 4, it reads, But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying in verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This statement, what God has cleansed you must not call common, is the crux of the message. And it's a critical component of the gospel. We believe that Christ died for all. Those of you who attended our Calvary Distinctives class, in the last session we talked about our beliefs relative to Calvinism and Arminianism. And there's elements within that, within those beliefs. One in particular in the five-point Calvinist doctrine that speaks of limited atonement. We reject the idea of limited atonement, believing that Christ has in fact died for all men. And if we truly believe that, then we cannot deny someone the message of salvation. We cannot deny when we hear that God has moved in someone's life, that they've surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and that they're saved. But this is what was happening. Why? Because of cultural and social ramifications of what they had to deal with. That if the Gentiles were saved, what does that mean for them? Peter says in verse 10, now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who had said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Now that's an important distinctive here, that it fell on them as it had us at the beginning. He was referencing that day of Pentecost to draw their memory back, to remember what happened to you and I. The same thing happened to them. And then I remembered the word of the Lord in verse 16, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He was remembering what Jesus had said to them. And if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They began to believe. No doubt Peter and the witnesses that he had with him, six other individuals were at least shaking their heads the whole time. Right? Well, he's, he's right, he's right, it happened, it happened. This is a legitimate thing. But they began to surrender. Their hearts began to soften as they began to hear what it was that Peter was saying to them. That the same thing that had happened to us happened to them. 
And if God is doing a work in their life, no different than ours, then who are we to reject them? And we have to ask ourselves that question once again of the individuals and the people and the circumstances and everything going on in our world today, the amount of times that people are rejected. That against the backdrop of the gospel message, it doesn't fit. It's contrary. That if we believe that Christ died for all, then we should receive all. And so they began to glorify God. They began to recognize what it was that God had done. They understood and accepted what had happened. And did they glorify God because the Gentiles too had the gift of the Spirit? Did they say, oh, praise God, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. That means that we can just have all sorts of services together and focus on the gifts of the Spirit. No, what they glorified God in was because the Gentiles had repentance to life. That is what's foundational here. Yes, they would have glorified Him, and and it was the proof of their salvation that they had the empowering of the Spirit. But what they emphasize here, what the distinctive was, was that they had repentance to life. It continues to reinforce a true gospel message to us that to know Jesus Christ is to repent and follow Him. Nevertheless, this was a difficult thing. For even though they were beginning to accept it, they had to begin to understand what this meant for them long term. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's start at the beginning. Neither Jew nor Greek. For these especially zealous, even legalistic Jewish believers to understand now that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither Jew nor Gentile, background, experience, tradition, preference, it contributes to who we are, but it shouldn't drive where we go. What the Jewish believers had to deal with was the way that they had always done things, was continuing to change. And there were new people coming to the faith. The gospel message, in like manner, says to churches today, be prepared for God to do new things. You know that the one most damaging thing to a move of God in the church is the statement, we didn't do it that way before? You'll kill a move of the Spirit real fast. Change. It's difficult. If I just stood up here and said, change, blood pressure is rising. Anxious feelings are coming in. We don't like change, generally speaking. Now, some people are all about it. Some people say, oh, I love change. They're a different breed. Most of us like things the way they were always meant to be, the way we've gotten comfortable. But it's necessary. That's the reality of it. It is necessary. If you have no change in the church it will almost always lead to no life in the church. We have to understand that because the whole idea of change, of seeing change happen within the church, is largely tied to the things that we established within the church. Now, yes, if we say, well, we're not going to teach the Bible anymore, that's a bad change. There are certain distinctives that must be held to. But those are clear within the Word of God. That should be our source for everything that we do within the church. But there are many things that we do that cannot be supported by the Word of God. And it doesn't mean that they're bad. But what it means is that there are times when God will say, 
do it differently. There's neither Jew nor Greek. They had to begin to let go of the way that they had done things before, of the belief that it has to happen this certain way. Neither slave nor free. One of the the most amazing things that's accomplished through the gospel is the level ground at the foot of the cross. The greatest path to racial reconciliation leads to the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where it is found and nowhere else. Our identity in Christ is the great equalizer. And repentance to life is in fact the solution for our world and our country. That is the message that needs to be shared. Neither male nor female. Oh, if every man who desires to lord himself over a female would read the word of God. Or if every feminist would grasp the word of God. If we would truly understand what the Bible has to say about the worth of a woman. There's no greater women's liberation movement than a life in Christ. That is true liberty. Yet, because it's been distorted so many times, because it's been abused, because it's been misrepresented, so many people have a false understanding of the Word of God, of what God has to say about men and women. And yes, He's established order, but it's a beautiful order. I was meeting with someone the other day, and we were talking specifically about that relationship. It happens all the time at daybreak as men come in and they're in difficult situations in their relationships and they're trying to understand how to be a man. And and sadly, what they've learned in terms of how to be a man is to just exert force, use muscle, demand things. I'm a man. I can demand it and it should be so. Even with a limited understanding of the Word of God, they say, oh, I see in here they need to submit. And it's so fun to ask them, submit to what? You want her to submit to that? Let's talk about, are you willing to lay down your life? Does she believe, know, trust, and see in your actions on a regular basis that you will give up everything to protect her and to serve her and to care for her? But it says she's the weaker vessel. Sometimes she's just weak and I'm strong and I've got to compensate. All right. Let's talk about what weaker means. Let's research this. Do you know that when it says that she's weaker, it means that really she's more valuable than you are? I mean, we are equal in the eyes of God, but that weaker, it speaks of a crystal vase. And there's some other variations of that, but something that has value, is precious, is useful. We're just the solo cup. We're functional. We have use. Yes, we have purpose. Multiple purposes. You can drop us, though, and it's, it's okay. You can throw us in the lake and we'll float to the other side. Somebody will pick us up. Do you get the picture? And so when men start to understand that, oh, yeah, I haven't been treating her very well. Oh, I can see where she doesn't really want to follow my lead. You see what the gospel does? Do you see if people would just understand this, it wouldn't be that, oh, that archaic Bible, it just gets it all wrong. It has no idea. Oh, if they would only understand how precious they are in the eyes of God. It's an amazing transformative work when people surrender to the Lord and allow their prejudices, their opinions, their perspectives, their traditions to be overcome by God's word and God's work. I want you to hear that again. It is an amazing transformative work when people surrender to the Lord and allow their prejudices, 
their opinions, their perspectives, their traditions to be overcome, overcome by God's word and God's work. That is what was happening. This is what began to happen when the Jewish believers began to see and accept what it was that God was doing. And the same challenge is before us today. And now those in verse 19 who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Antioch was a very established city, heavily populated, but also a wicked city. All forms of idol worship were present in Antioch, namely that of Daphne, which was marked by immoral worship practices that were culturally and socially accepted. Antioch was the Vegas of our day, and it was ripe for evangelistic efforts. As the church began to be established there, it was important to send out leaders who could oversee, who could support and encourage these churches and help to establish a strong foundation. And ultimately, however, as the word states, it was the hand of the Lord that was with them that caused a great number to believe, to believe and turn to the Lord. Pastor and teacher David Guzik reminds us of this, a ministry can't turn people to the Lord unless the hand of the Lord is with them. You can turn people to a personality without the hand of the Lord. You can turn people to a social club without the hand of the Lord. You can turn people to a church or an institution without the hand of the Lord. But you can't turn people to the Lord without the hand of the Lord. And it was recognized that it was the hand of the Lord that was working, that was doing this awesome work here in Antioch. And this is, this is ultimately why we are here and what Barnabas' presence was intended to establish. Our foundation must be established by the hand of the Lord. Our vision must be guided by the hand of the Lord. Any growth we see must be granted by the hand of the Lord, or it will not last. And then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, verse 22, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Barnabas is first dispatched to the church in Antioch, and he's encouraged by what he sees. Barnabas spends time establishing them in their faith, and, and they would be purposed in their hearts, it says, committed to walking with and abiding in Christ. And as he lays a solid foundation for the church, it begins to grow. It's believed at one point that the church there, that there was actually a building that was built for the church. It's one of the first places that we see an actual gathering place for the church, and it held 100,000 people. you believe that? Antioch today is a city in Turkey of a population of about 3,500, and at this time it was about half a million. 100,000. Many of you football fans are familiar with the big house, University of Michigan, right? Big Ten ball? Uh, anybody? Anybody? Well, if you've ever attended a game at a stadium quite like that, you'll see what it's like to bring 100,000 people together in one place. It's crazy. It's hard to imagine. And so the church was growing, and certainly Barnabas had gone to get Saul at this point, but what he recognizes here is he needs help. And so he goes, he goes to get Saul. Why Saul? There were others in the area. Why Saul? Because Saul was called to the Gentiles. This was the opportunity now for Saul to begin 
his work that he was called to. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So Barnabas travels to Tarsus and he finds Saul and he brings him to Antioch. And it's been, at this point, it's been 10 to 15 years at this point for Saul. I lean more towards the 15 year mark since he was blinded along the road. Almost 15 years, Christian, before Saul began to realize the fulfillment of his calling. That's a reminder for us to be patient. And he'd been working, no doubt, preaching in the synagogue, sharing the message, telling others of, of what Christ had done in his life. It's likely that he had already experienced much persecution even in this time. We saw that it almost immediately, he almost immediately began to be persecuted, fearing for his life. I don't know that he was fearing, but people were attempting to take his life, and so they sent him to Tarsus. And now here he's, he's coming together and he's working with Barnabas. And we see here Barnabas invest in Saul and put him to work. D.L. Moody says this, It is better to put ten men to work than to do the work of ten men. You see, I have a responsibility in the church to put you to work, to raise up gifted men who are able to teach. Bobby and I were going back and forth last night about something, and it was an interesting thing that I saw and, and something that happens today in our culture. Listen, if Peter had, and I don't mean, I'm not trying to cast judgment on anyone. If Peter had access to satellite television, do you think Peter would have said, hey, disciples, just hang on back. I'll broadcast throughout the world. I don't think he would have. I think he raised up men. He sent them out. He raised up gifted men to teach. Now, again, I'm not trying to pass judgment on satellite campuses out there, but I think we have to be really careful. We ask ourselves, is the focus becoming about one man? I don't care if you've got 20 churches across the country. If you're broadcasting every one of those churches, you're missing out the opportunity to raise up people who can teach, who can teach the word. And Lord knows we're going to need them. We're going to need them because we may not be raptured out of here before they try and take these away from us. And so we need people who are going to be able to teach the word, who are going to have it in here and in here, who can share it. It's real easy to cut off satellites. If that's the way that you're learning and going to church and experiencing a move of the Holy Spirit, if it's all through a screen, you can wipe out the church really fast. We've got to spend time here. We've got to feel it. We've got to teach it. We've got to learn it. We've got to read it. More people need to become skilled in teaching it. And I'm on that journey too, okay? I'm not proclaiming that I've arrived. But that is what we need to focus on. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That is the body working together, and we're beginning to see that happen here. And it says that they were called Christians. The disciples were called Christians here. And remember, disciples is all those who are followers of Christ, desiring to learn. This is one of only three different times in the word that they're called Christians. In the Latin suffix, I-A-N, means belonging to the party of. And it was used of different groups. And this was not a name that the disciples themselves assigned 
to themselves. This isn't something that they picked out. In fact, it was intended somewhat to make fun of them. It was the pagans who lived in the area that said, oh, they're Christians. They belong to the party of Christ. And this is an awesome thing because what this meant was that they were known by their faith. They could be identified. Other people could see it. Christian, as I said, was not necessarily intended to be an endearing term or a compliment, but it was hopefully met with a reply of, yes, guilty as charged. I belong to Jesus Christ. And it begs the question of, does this have the same meaning today? Many of us say no. For someone to say that they are a Christian today does not necessarily mean so. We live in a country where the term Christian is thrown out regularly. Yet we see a waning Christian influence in nearly every area of our culture. And as more and more people, it seems, casually accept the title, far fewer fill the role. Are you easily identified as a Christian? Does your life proclaim it? Have you repented of your sins? Expressed faith in Christ? Are you walking in newness of life such that the world around you sees it? They know it. Verse 27, And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. We don't know much about Agabus or or how by the Spirit that they were able to convey their prophecy. We don't know a lot of specifics about this example. What we do know is that it was fulfilled. We have extra-biblical texts, historical documents, Josephus, who specifically mentions the famine that was experienced in the land, and it was very bad in Judea. And what we see here is the church giving of their own ability and accord towards a greater need. Gone are the days of what many have coined Christian communism or communal living. We saw that at the beginning of Acts, but it faded away. And we now begin to see here a model that's been carried through still to today. This is the pattern for Christian giving today. That every man would give according to his ability, the church included. Many of you have recently commented on various aspects of the ministry here that you perceive the Lord blessing in. And while from a leadership perspective, none of your deacons or elders can step back and say, well, yes, let's... Let me tell you about the model that we've employed here and how it's working out so successfully. We wouldn't dare to suggest that. But I can tell you something with great confidence that I know the Lord is blessing is an increased focus on giving to missions. Because of your tithe dollars coming to the church, we've expanded our focus on missions, giving more to our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are in need, who are doing different things. Today after church, we've got a mission trip planning meeting to go to Ethiopia, not just to give financially, but to give of our time to say, hey, we're going to come, we're going to serve you, we're going to support you. By doing that, I am confident that the Lord has blessed. And we will continue to do that because it's an example for us within the Word of God that the church should come together to help support the needs of one another, not just in our own body, but abroad. Thinking in terms of those are my brothers and sisters who are facing persecution today in China. Those are my brothers and sisters who are in North Korea who are just trying to get a page of Scripture, to listen to a bit of it, to hear something, meeting underground in order to have time and and worship and encouraging one another in the Word. And it's the Gentile church that does it for those Jewish believers who at first said, no, no way, they couldn't be saved. God was continuing to move in this early church. We see three key things from this passage today. 
The first of which is that the Jewish believers received the Gentiles and accepted them. This required letting go of tradition and embracing a move of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, as they accepted the Gentile believers, they invested in them. They encouraged them. There is a biblical model for raising up new leaders in the church, encouraging one another in the faith, walking alongside one another as we grow in the Lord. We have a tremendous opportunity to do that right here in this body. We have a unique body and an opportunity to put this into practice. And finally, the church is to give one to another. There are likely more difficult times ahead for us today. We could easily see plenty turn to scarcity in the blinking of an eye. Are we committed to the role that we can play with one another within the church? How are we living out the pattern for that today? Each of these things then contributes to our identity in Christ. Like those believers in Antioch, does the world know who we belong to? Are we readily identified as belonging to Christ? Are our actions conveying the love of Jesus Christ? Or is there bias and tradition mixed in with that that limits us from seeing what it is that God is doing today? Those are the things that I challenge you with and ask you to wrestle with. Even as we close in song, to put those things before the Lord and say, Lord, search my heart to see if any of those things are in me, Lord. And and if they are, I know they're not of you. And I pray, Lord, take them. Change my perspective. Change my heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we bring our time of study here to a close today, Lord, I pray that through your Spirit, you'd work in our hearts. We see such a great example here within the Word. And in Acts 11 specifically, Lord, as you continue to do radical things in the early church, which serves as an example to us, Or our world today desperately needs a mighty move of the Spirit. Our world today needs the presence of true Christians, of the true church, to intervene, to turn the attention of others, Lord, back to you. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would move. Use us, Lord, as you see fit. May we be open vessels for you, to be used by you, however you desire, And I pray that here this morning, Lord, as we close in song, as we sing to you, as we worship, Lord, which is in and of itself an opportunity for surrender, for us to lay aside our wills in exchange for yours. Lord, if there's any of these things, Lord, that that are not of you, that are in us, Lord, then deal with it, Lord, we pray. Work in us, Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.